Infirmary Media. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week I will be competing with May of 1992 alongside these men. First off, dueling with May of 1983, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? That's right. I got May of 1983 this time around, and I'm so happy that we have a whole month and not a week for a change. It's been quite a while to get some nice picks, so let's do this. Also joining us on the panel this week is the host of the Video Rangers podcast. Please welcome back to the show, the incomparable Mike Ranger. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is a real modern gentleman. He is an actor, comedian, author, and foodie who is best known for his roles as Deacon Sharp on The Bold and the Beautiful and The Young and the Restless, and as A.J. Quartermain from General Hospital. But you'll know him as Karate's Bad Boy and part-time tree vandal Mike Barnes from Karate Kid 3. Please welcome to the show Judge Sean Kanan. What's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. All right, duelers, strike first, strike hard. It's time for more Dueling Decades. You know, I, I before we get started, I just got to tell Sean, like, uh, I was talking to my mom. I actually ran into her at the gas station today, which is bizarre because I've told them <laughs> to stay at home. And uh, I went to the gas station and her, my mom and dad are at the deli ordering sandwiches. Who can't stay away from that gas station oh, food, it's right? Horrible. <laughs> they were at a quick check. I don't know if you're familiar. We have them in New York. But I was like, what the, Like, why are you here? And uh, she's like going on and on. She's like, oh, what, what are your plans for tonight? So I was telling her I was recording. And I told her your name. And she's like, that sounds so familiar. Who? No, no, no. She goes, was he on a soap opera? And I said, mom, it's AJ Quartermain. She goes, oh, my God. Really? <laughs> In the middle of quick check, she was just losing her shit. <laughs> All right, well, let's go down to our guest judge, Sean Kanan, for the official toss-off. Employing plug, I'm going to use a copy of my newest book, Success Factor X. We have heads and tails. I'm about to flip the book. Heads. Here we go. Sorry, my friend, it is tails. Oh. That's right, so we'll flip it one more time against me and Mike Ranger to see who goes first in this game. Mike, call it in the Ready? air. One, two, three. I'll go heads. And it's tails again. All right, so I win the toss-off. You know what, gentlemen? Let's go with some news to open up tonight's game. For my news story, I chose something that I don't think is ever going to have a chance to come up on this show again, most likely. I have the ratification of an amendment to the United States Constitution. Matter of fact, it was the last amendment to be ratified, the 27th Amendment, which is everybody's favorite amendment. Okay, maybe not. But there is an interesting story behind it. What the 27th Amendment does, it prohibits any law that increases or decreases the salaries of the members of Congress. Oddly enough, this was one of the first amendments proposed, but it kind of just got shelved and never got ratified. 
There was a, a young 19-year-old college sophomore, Gregory Watson, at the University of Austin in Texas, who wrote a paper for it for his government class, got a C on it. And his whole thesis was that this law could actually still be ratified today. He got a C on it. The t- teacher basically called him an idiot, said he was stupid. So he uh, spent about 10 years researching this. And on May 5th, 1992, this became the 27th Amendment of the United States Constitution. From him? Yeah, he really started this whole movement. And then, of course, it goes on to uh, the Congress and the Senate. And then I found an article in the Fort Star Telegram dated May 22nd, 1992. says, Austin man seeks credit for pay raise law. Oddly enough, he never got any of the credit of this because he was not an election official. A representative, Mr. John Boehner out of Ohio, took all the credit. He said he did all the research and brought this up. But really, it was uh, Gregory Watson, a 19-year-old sophomore, that we can uh, thank for the 27th Amendment. Very nice. Now I know why you went with news first. All right, Mike Ranger, over to you. Well, that's uh, that's great, Mark, because I think I have a... Subject that uh, you'll quite enjoy here, because I found an article from the Clarion Ledger on May 31st, 1990, titled, Kelsey Grammer, Actor on Cheers, Ordered to Trial on a Cocaine Charge. (laughs) The Associated Press reports the Cheers star, who is already serving a 30-day sentence for drunken driving, was ordered Wednesday to stand trial on a felony cocaine possession charge. If convicted of cocaine possession, he could be sentenced to three years in prison. Luckily, filming for the season of Cheers was over, so Grammer's jailing did not affect the show. This all dates back to an April 1988 incident when police stopped Grammer's car for an expired license tag. The check showed a prior warrant, and while riding in the patrol car, a packet of cocaine fell out of his pocket. Grammer continued to violate his probation and acquire various charges throughout the 1990s. How does a, a bag of cocaine just fall out of your pocket? If I had yeah. a nickel, you know. <laughs> Oops, uh, shit, another one. Ah, well, he had a couple dimes. They fell out <laughs> wow. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the news round? We got to talk about this a little bit before just to lay a little groundwork. 1982 was a huge year for communications. You had AT&T, which at the time was like the biggest company on the planet. And they were mandated by the government to split up. So you had all the birth of the baby bells. 9X, Pack Bell, Bell Atlantic, all that stuff. And if you ever have time, go back, check out the AT&T history. It's insane because AT&T that we know now is actually singular. It's, it's crazy. It's bizarre. You have to check it out. If you go on YouTube, you probably find a video of 30 minutes to listen to that. But anyhow, so when all these companies arose from the ashes of AT&T, they started to do some new stuff to try to create some new revenue streams. And one of those things that they invented with a deregulation was 9X's infamous 976 pay-per-minute numbers. And earlier that year, 9X held a lottery to award these numbers to businesses, you know, whatever they wanted to do. And the Federal Communications Commission at the time, they were being bombarded with complaints about a popular new 9X service called Dial-A-Porn that supposedly was easily accessible to children. And the complaints stem from parents finding these calls in their telephone bills. And, but the FCC said, hey, look, there's nothing that we can do under law. There's no action we can take. But Senator Paul Tribble from Virginia, he took all these complaints and he forwarded them to the Justice Department so they can investigate it. Now, some background on dial-a-porn. They were getting about 500,000 calls a day. All right. They, were, they had the capacity to do 56,000 calls an hour. And supposedly there were 7 million calls in their first week. So this thing was, it was just massive. And uh, the service began in February and it was the brainchild of the adult magazine, High Society. And the uh, the magazine won that lease earlier in the year, like I was talking about before from that lottery from 9X. But there were other services like Dial-A-Prayer that were going on. There was like the weather. But then you had Dial-A-Porn and they featured these 57 second recordings with voices of all the High Society centerfold models. And the services, they ran 24 hours a day, and they changed these recordings three times a day. And supposedly, they were making twenty-five grand every day. So it's freaking nuts. So basically, the story is that the FCC was receiving these complaints, and now you had dial-a-porn. 
And if you grew up in the 80s, 976 was where it was at. I mean, for everything. I mean, we had like the Corys had their own number. And then we had the 900 numbers. Then we it went into like, you know, Dion Warwick and the whole, uh, what did they call that one? Psychic Friends Network. Psychic Friends yes, Network. Did you yes. call that before? Because you, you were right on it. It's almost like he knew you were going to say that. That is surprising. Is, no. did, it, honestly, did you ever call it? I, I didn't, but I will tell you a funny story briefly. I went to uh, Malaysia with Dion Warwick. True story. <laughs> I played in a, a tennis tournament, and so it was this group of uh, – celebrity is a big word. Okay, let's just start right there. But uh, <laughs> there was a group of us that we didn't know each other, so, you know, you figured out who was on the trip once we went to the airport, and there was Dion Warwick, who could not have been cooler, except every single time we went to a restaurant or a nightclub in Malaysia, they would start playing, do you know the way to San Jose? <laughs> Oh, that's it. I'm booking my flight to Malaysia now. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I told this story on the show before. We were at a house party. This is like my senior year. And uh, somebody took the girl's phone and they called the, the psychic oh. hotline and they took her phone and put it in the freezer. Oh. And like, yeah, like four hours later, a friend of mine opens the freezer to get like, you know, like a beer or something. And the phone is in there. He picks it up. And the lady is still on the phone. And the phone still works. That kid was never seen from again. <laughs> no, she did She did end up graduating the same year as me. She lived. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. But I don't know how. But anyhow, uh, let's pass this one down to Sean. You got the three stories. What are we doing for the news round? Well, you know, Mark, I got to tell you, uh, as a guy that has a political science degree from UCLA, I had high hopes for your uh, your. Um. But unfortunately, it descended into my seventh grade civics class. And, you know, I, I got to fault you a little bit that the 27th Amendment is everybody's favorite. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick my neck out there and say that the 21st, which ended prohibition, probably is a little more of a crowd pleaser. Uh, Cheers to that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Mike, uh, interesting. So we got cocaine. We got a celebrity. We got jail. Always Interesting. Uh, and then we and then we come to man crush. And uh, well, first of all, as a uh, high society subscription holder since the late '80s, I immediately perked up when I heard this. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I, it's a tough one. Celeb cocaine story or phone sex? I I think I'm going to have to give it to man crush. Oh phone shit! Sex. All right, dial a porn for the win. All right, so we'll let's keep this the same and just. Just to preface everybody, we did try to do this call the other night, and I fucked up. My internet was total shit, and we had to we had to get Sean back here. He was nice enough to come back on and do this, so thank you very much for doing that. But now we, we changed the course a little bit, and I get control of the board here, but fuck it. I'm just going to stick with music because I like where this is going, so let, let's stick with this. We got uh, May 20th, 1983. I had the opportunity to select a couple album releases here, but when you have a massive single, you have to account for that. And you look at stuff like Spotify nowadays, a song like this had 650 million plays. And today alone, me and my wife were out on the deck, just drinking some fucking white claws. And I feel like I grew a vagina in the process, but we listened to this song like probably a couple times just because I had it as a pick. So fuck it. Uh, this single comes off the album synchronicity. It was released a few weeks later into June. Uh, but this song right here was number one on every chart that mattered around the world for eight weeks, including being number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 end of the decade chart, which is everything from 80 to 89. And it was number five. All right. And then in 2018, U.S. Billboard Hot 100 put out an all time chart. And this went from the beginning in 1958 when they first started all the way to summer of 2018 when they published this. And this song landed at number 31. So that's not too shabby, all right? And it's definitely not too shabby when you talk about a song that's inspired about, it's inspired from cheating on his wife, his then wife, actually, with her best friend. And then, not to mention, writing this song at Ian Fleming's desk at the Golden Eye Estate in Jamaica. Wow. You know, like, life is pretty tough for Sting, you would think, or the police <laughs> at the time, but not really. 
Uh, the song was also voted number one of 1983 via a poll that was done by Rolling Stone magazine. It won two Grammys for Best Song of the Year and Best Pop Performance. And then in 2019, this, I think, is the biggest one. Because when you know the BMI catalog and everything that's in it, BMI said that this is the most performed song in the entire catalog since 1983. Wow. That's fucking amazing. And then, of course, in 1997, it was sampled by Puff Daddy, and you got you know the Notorious B.I.G. tribute, which we also listen to today. That I don't think holds up, but that's the the whole "I'll Be Missing You" and that shit yeah. topped the charts for 11 weeks, and it also won a Grammy. So that's not too shabby. But the the single that I'm talking about here is "Every Breath You Take" by the Police, and that was released May 20th, 1983. Okay, that's a good one. All right, so I'll go next for the music round. You know, Sting is great, Man Crush. I got to give you that. But you know what? My Anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hun. That's right. For 1992's music pick, I'm going with Sir Mix-A-Lot, Baby Got Back. It's a song that everybody is familiar with. I'm sure we all know the lyrics because if you're thinking 1990s music, there might not be a better song that describes the 1990s. Uh, It was the second best-selling song in the United States in 1992. It was ranked number 17 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of Hip Hop. And it debuted at number 75 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart about a month before it was actually released as a single on May 7, 1992. So we're going to go over to our good friends at newspapers.com and we go to the Longview Daily News out of Longview, Washington on May 21, 1992. In an article that is titled Mix-A-Lot Message, Rapper Sells Well Staying True to Self. It's a whole expose piece about Sir Mix-A-Lot. And he says here in the article, I'm not degrading women. I don't call women bitches. And then the article goes on to name drop and call out rapper Too Short. Unlike Too Short, the last rapper to play in Longview, I don't talk about what I do in bed. I stay true to myself. I consider myself a blue-collar rapper, says Sir Mix-A-Lot. I talk about things that a lot of people do. I'm not MC Hammer. I'm not Vanilla Ice. I always talk about something that happened in my own life. So he goes on to talk about how Baby Got Back is not racist. It's about his preference for black women that have larger rear ends. (laughs) Women today, he says, look anorexic. They look like they're about to die, he just complained. It was all inspired by a Miss Jennifer Lopez, who was one of the Fly Girls back on Fox on the day on In Living Color. So that was actually his inspiration behind Baby Got Back. But that's my pick for the music round. But Mike Ranger, let's see what you got. Hold on, Mark. It's kind of interesting there because if you guys are familiar with Miami Vice and the intro to Miami Vice, and this is something that my wife and I, anytime we've ever watched it, in the intro, they... They show those two girls walking down the street with their, uh, like their, it's not even a thong, but it's just like those 80s style bathing suits and it's like straight up their ass and their asses are like, like this long, like, you know, and (laughs) there's no ass there. So I I could see that, you know, butts and boobs in the eighties look totally different than they do now. It's amazing. It's the chicken, bro. It is. I think it is. (laughs) It's, it's the hormones we put in the milk. Thank you, Purdue. At the same time, my ass and stomach keeps getting bigger, so I don't know. Nobody cares about yours, though. (laughs) Sorry about that. All right, so what do you got, Mike? Well, on May 16th, 1990, Ice Cube released his solo debut album, America's Most Wanted, on Priority Records. This record was recorded right after Cube's departure from Ruthless Records and N.W.A. Despite Dr. Dre wanting to produce the new album... Tensions within the remainder of the group forced Cube to seek out public enemy production team The Bomb Squad. The album explores socioeconomics, ghetto life, institutional racism, and drug addiction. The album is certified platinum and is considered one of the most influential albums of all time. Oh boy, guys, there's a lot to unpack here, (laughs) let me tell you. Let's start with Man Crush, Every Breath You Take. So uh, they say a gentleman never kisses and tells. Unless, of course, you're Sting, then you have an affair, you go to Jamaica, you write a song about it, millions of dollars, talk about taking lemons and making lemonade. That's a good one. It's a good one. Um, Mike, I'm a huge fan of NWA. Love the Fridays movies. Um, you know, I was, I was pulling for you. 
But you know, Mark, then you come along with Sir Mix-a-Lot, and I mean, who's gonna argue that Sir Mix-a-Sir Mix-a-Lot was definitely not a pioneer of the women's movement and a huge early supporter of the Me Too movement? <laughs> Besides, I have to say that um, I like big butts, and I cannot lie, and you other brothers can't deny. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think I think I gotta go with Sir Mix-a-Lot. Mark. All right. That's a tough round, man. Yeah. Like all three of them, I don't know how I would have judged that, honestly. Well, yours both had kind of sort of sexual components to them, and and Mike's didn't. So you know, yeah. <laughs> what can I tell you? Well, except for uh, what do you, what's that one song that he had a video for? Um, Today was a good day. Yeah, but that's like three or four years later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, he put the ass to sleep in that one. Yeah, and she did call him the Top Gun. After, she did. So. She, she did. did. Well, Ice Cube's a pimp. All right, so, Mark, you have control of the board. All right, you know what, guys? Uh, let's do some hot products. We'll go over to the hot products round. All right, so for my first hot product, we're going to surf on over to May 5th, 1992, and I hope you uh, start up your Windows MS-DOS computer right now because it's going to take a few minutes for that to load up and start because uh, on May 5th, 1982, one of the greatest games that changed video gaming forever was uh, released, and that's Wolfenstein 3D. I'm sure all of us yeah. played this game. It was actually the second major release by ID or ID, depending on who you talk to. Uh, it was a second major release for them after they came out with the Commander Keen series, mid-91. Uh, Wolfenstein 3D was a major success for the company. It was selling about 4,000 copies a month by mail alone when it first came out. Uh, selling 200,000 copies by the end of 1993. They've actually christened this game the grandfather of all 3D shooters. So, GoldenEye, Call of Duty, Battlefield probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Wolfenstein. Now, if you've never played this game, you play as BJ Blazkowicz and you fight your way through a Nazi prison camp and, spoilers, at the end, you fight Adolf Hitler in a giant robotic suit with chain guns. Now, the game was originally released in separate episodes and parts. In the first part, you could pick up for free as freeware. So you get to play the full first level of the game and then decide if you want to purchase the rest of the game. Revolutionize the game industry with such a popular title. So that's my selection, Wolfenstein 3D, released for MS-DOS, May 5th, 1992. Damn, that's a good one. I see every once in a while in the 90s, you get those games like earlier on when we started doing this, like maybe 18 months ago or so people that had the nineties always struggled to find good hot products. And I never understood why, because all that shit was out there all, especially like technology wise, it's tons yeah. of it. Like websites, games. ATM. That was a hot product. Yes. I mean, it's fucking huge. Like there's so much good shit. Game. Not waiting in line anymore while some ladies write a check for hurting. <laughs> well, that still fucking happens. That drives me nuts. It's like, what are you doing? Well, like, who writes checks? Matter of fact, I, I shit you not. Like two weeks ago, during this whole like quarantine stay at home, I went to ShopRite. And the, the way that they have this at our concession or at our uh, supermarkets now, you got to stand six foot back and there's a line that goes out to the left. So it already takes forever. The lady that was in front of me, she was probably like in her 60s, 50s or 60s. She breaks out her checkbook. No. Did you literally see where you're taking an axe and splitting it with me? No, but my, like, I immediately had the meltdown look in my face, I'm sure. Like, she looked at me, she was like, all right, well, this guy's fucking on hinge. So they gave her the check, and I guess they just run it through the system, and it passes through and prints everything out on it. Well, I guess when they did it, it printed wrong or they put it through the wrong way. So she had to write a second check. And I'm like, what the fight? <laughs> That's classic. It's 2020. Like, stop. Writing a check for, uh... <laughs> for like two bucks. <laughs> All right, man crush. Let's go over to you. What do you have for hot products? All right. So we got Memorial Day weekend, 1983. So you had the me decade of the seventies. Now that's over. And now it's the 80s, and we're ushering on the Us Decade. And we get a special event. It was held at the Glen Helen Regional Park, which is about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. It's changed the name since. I, I, I forgot what it's called now. But about four years ago on this, our old show on Poop Culture, we had uh, Glen Avini on, 
who was a historian yeah. that was doing a documentary on the Us Festival 82. And I remember the whole time we're talking to this dude, I was just thinking he was doing this documentary on it. And I was like, I wish we were doing 83 because it seems so much cooler. 82 was awesome. But the lineup in 83 was just so fucking amazing Way better yeah. that I was just like, man, why can't you just do the documentary in 83? But I digress. So uh, for $20 a day, there's four days in total, which is roughly $53 in 2020. You could have been one of nearly 700,000 people who attended the 1983 Us Festival, making it one of the largest concerts ever in U.S. history. You had a, a couple free concerts that had more like you had Garth Brooks in uh, Central Park and you had the New York Philharmonic and stuff like that. But they're free. And then just to put this in perspective, Woodstock was about four to five hundred thousand people. Yeah. So over four days, this had seven, almost 700,000 people. Uh, but again, like we were talking about before with Avini, Wozniak was at it again. Of course, he was the co-founder of Apple. He just bled money from the first one. And he lost even more in this one as well. But I think that uh, Steve Wozniak just had so much money at the time. He just wanted to hang out with people. So that's why he put these things on. But I'm not even sure with the amount of people he had how the fuck he lost money, but he did. He ended up losing like 12 million bucks or something, but I'm sure that's a drop in the bucket to him. Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but Glenn had told us a story about 82 where he saw David Lee Roth hanging out the window in his yeah. tour bus. He was in a park tour bus hanging out the window and he's yelling at Glenn like, Hey man, come on over, come on over. Like nothing's going on. So Glenn walks over to the bus and uh, Dave just starts having a conversation with him from the window. Like nothing's going on. And he's like, Oh dude, just come on the bus. So Glenn goes to walk up the stairs of the bus and some groupie is just going down on uh, DLR, just giving him like some crazy BJ in the window. And the whole time, like David Lee Ross is just like acting like nothing's going on. Just like talking to people out the window, like waving and shit. So, so today I was watching various clips from us 83 and I heard all kinds of stories about how they showed up drunk and pretty much they got paid a million bucks to do the show, but then they found out that Bowie was also getting a million bucks to do the show. So they had like, they lost their shit. They wanted the most money. So after it was all said and done, Wozniak gave them an extra 500 grand. So they, after like three hours, they came out on stage and they did like kind of a shitty set, even though they were in the middle of a tour already, they came out and did this set and DLR was smashed. And at one point, some dude starts, it's hot as fuck, by the way, it's Memorial day. It's like a hundred yeah. degrees out and somebody's squirting uh, DLR with like these water cannon guns in front. <laughs> and he stops and goes, Hey man, and you can find this on YouTube. It's fucking hilarious. He goes, Hey man, cut that shit out or I'm going to fuck your girlfriend tonight. So <laughs> that story with Glenn's story, I'm pretty sure he would have done it, but yeah, let's just look at the lineup right here from, from these four days. It's fucking insane. The way they did it is they broke it up into four different days of four different genres, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, you had Saturday, May 28th, which is new wave day. You had the vinyls in excess. Wall of Voodoo, Oingo Boingo, Flock of Seagulls, Stray Cats, Men at Work. And that was finished up by The Clash, which I have another story on. We can talk about some other time. Uh, Sunday, May 29th. This was the big day. This was heavy metal day. You had Quiet Riot. I mean, this, this like predates OzFest and everything else to, to come. But you had Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Triumph, Scorpions. And then, of course, it was finished up by Van Halen that night. Seems like Rat should have been in there somewhere. Actually, I... I think Rat, did Rat do 82? Because I think they did. They might have, yeah. They weren't on this one, but then you had the Rock Day, which was Los Lobos. Uh, I'm just looking at the big names here. Berlin, Missing Persons, U2, who was actually supposed to play wow. the New Wave Day, but said, we don't want to be categorized in New Wave, so move us to, to the Rock Day, and they did right. that. Uh, Pretenders, Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, and then, of course, it was finished up by David Bowie. And then the weird part about this concert that I don't think a lot of people realize nowadays, but they did back then, they had a country day, but that was held a week later on the following Saturday. And uh, that was a big day for country, I guess. They had uh, Ricky Skaggs, Hank Williams Jr., Alabama, William Jennings, Riders in the Sky, wow. and it was finished up by Willie Nelson. So you had everybody who was everybody in 1983 was playing the us festival during that Memorial day weekend and close to 700,000 people saw it. So that's a pretty fucking big hot wow. product. 
for 20 bucks a day. Can you imagine? Sold. Yeah, exactly. Shut up and take my money, please. But that's what I have for hot products of May of 1983. Mike, what do you got? Well, on May 22nd, 1990, Microsoft released its most critically and commercially successful operating system, Windows 3.0, considered by many to be the direct competitor to Apple Macintosh's easy-to-use platform, featuring a new graphical interface where clickable icons represent applications. Windows 3.0 is considered to be the first version of Windows Windows to receive critical acclaim. After 1990, it was almost impossible to find an office computer not running Windows. At the end of the fiscal year, Microsoft revenues were over $1.1 billion and made Microsoft the first microcomputer company to reach the $1 billion mark in one year. I remember that one. And you had it like it, you couldn't boot into it. It wasn't like Windows 95. You had to like go to DOS. You had to type Windows.exe, open it, and then go through that shit. I remember that. And I it crashed all the fucking time. I cannot stand it. <laughs> yeah, it didn't get good until 3.1. Then you could play Wolfenstein. It, well, through DOS. <laughs> the only thing you guys are missing is like a 36-sided die right <laughs> Maybe that'll come up in a later round, man. I don't know. <laughs> that is a hot product. Let's kick it down to our judge, Sean Kanan, to find out the ruling for this round. You know, yours without a doubt was the most important. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Um, but it also was just unfortunately boring. Um, <laughs> important but boring. Um, Mark, hot products. I mean, I, I love video games. Love Wolfenstein. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Goldeneye. I mean, Rockets in the Temple. Come on, yeah. especially with big heads. <laughs> um, and the Golden Gun, knife only. Oh, you know, yes. it's a little bit of a loose um, version of a hot product, and you're referencing like an entire concert. It's the I mean, ticket it's not really product. It's more of an event. So, I mean, that is coloring outside the lines there a, bit, a little bit, but I'm going to let you slide on that. Um, $20 a day. I mean, you know, can you imagine, like, the same pitch when they're telling the guy, hey, it's $20 a day. Come out to Ultima. What could go wrong? <laughs> right? I'll throw this out there. There was two deaths during that whole thing. Yeah, so, that- for 700,000 people, though, that's acceptable, I guess. <laughs> throw my hands up. It's, you know. Um, you know, I mean, come on, the David Lee Roth story, which was it, it not, not only one good part of the bus, but then followed up by the, uh, you know, the, the, I'll, I'll tell, I'll bang your girlfriend. I mean, I, I, it's rock and roll, guys. I, I, I got to give it to Man Crush. Yes. Fair and enough. it's like, I get what you're saying. I had to go outside the box. And on, on the last episode, I did the same thing. And I found a concert from the Grateful Dead. You got to go off the ticket. So, like. For twenty bucks, I mean that's like the hottest thing you can get. Yeah. What would you rather spend twenty bucks on, like that or a like tank of gas in nineteen eighty three? You know. How many people actually went to that concert? I think the exact amount was like six hundred and seventy five thousand. So that means that they they grossed around fourteen million in ticket sales, if I'm not mistaken. And he lost money. And probably several more millions on merchandise and everything else. But I mean, if they're paying people a million dollars a pop for the top backs, so, I mean, this is a guy that like couldn't put the basic map together. I mean, <laughs> why well, have several of these people come over? Why don't you just pay them a hundred thousand each and have them come to your living room, you know, and just invite your friend. He fucked it up, man. Like he paid every, the problem was this. He paid everybody this astronomical fees. So what I was going to say before about the clash this is what happened. And there was a big thing between Van Halen and the clash too. And Van Halen came out on stage. They clashed and they said, yeah, they clashed. Uh, DLR came out and he was drinking out of a bottle of JD. And he said some comment like, this is real fucking JD. We don't drink fake iced tea out of the bottle. Like the clash. Yeah. But anyhow, <laughs> the clash got paid 500 grand to headline the new wave day. And when they got up to finalize the end of that night or whatever, the crowd wasn't having it or whatever. And uh, the class was complaining about how much all these other bands were getting paid. So the guys who were running now, you got to think about this at the US Festival. This is all about supposedly about technology. So they had these huge video boards that they didn't have at other concerts. So on this huge video board behind the clash, 
they put a copy of their $500,000 check up there when they were bitching oh. about not getting paid enough. And the crowd was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> wow. And then it was also people were saying that this was primarily responsible because he- the heavy metal day and the rock day was so huge and that the new wave day got kind of shit on that. This was almost the death of new wave right here. Yeah. So that's kind of a big deal, too. Bat and the flock and Bell's haircuts didn't really help their cause. <laughs> no, no. They look fucking awesome, man. I'm gonna, <laughs> in another 30 days, I'm, I'm going to look like that if my barber doesn't uh, open up. <laughs> All right, so let's do a score reset here. Man Crush, you are in the lead 2-1, to one, heading into the first two-point round. Where are we going next? Uh, I, just because Sean's on here, we have to end with movies. I mean, I, I think that's... Yeah, that seems fitting. Yeah, we got to do that. So let's go TV. Uh, and I'm going to start this one May 10th, 1983. Uh, after eight seasons, we got a Happy Days spinoff that came to an end. And it's interesting, though, because there was another Happy Days spinoff that also ended in March of 83. And that was Joni Loves Chachi. And then the next year, Happy Days got canceled in 84. So I guess the writing was on the wall for all of these shows. But this particular show, it's a Happy Days spinoff, but it didn't rely on Happy Days. It had multiple seasons at the top of the television ratings. And coincidentally, this show beat out Happy Days in most of the years they went head to head. So for eight seasons, they were up there. It was the most watched show in back to back years in 77 and 78 when it had a rating share of 30. That's fucking astronomical. But I mean, again, you got to figure there's probably only like five channels to choose from. So, but they were at the top. Like, and we've gone over this a lot of times in the show about television networks back in the day. Here's CBS screwing the pooch because they try to get greedy and they try to move this show from Tuesday nights where they were killing everyone with a 30 share. And they decided to move it to Thursday nights. And then for the last three seasons, it stagnated and went from one to 20 for the last three seasons. But even at 20, it had a 20 share, which is fucking crazy. What could have been if they would have just kept it on Tuesday nights? But then you look at the show. It wasn't just the show. It was merch, man. You had, there were dolls for the show. You could buy a shots delivery van. There were Lenny and Squiggy dolls. There were Laverne and Shirley dolls. There was an album that was done by Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams called Laverne and Shirley Sing. And it actually did fairly well. Then you had Lenny and the Squig Tones came out with their own album. <laughs> I mean, this it just went on and on. And even the theme song, Making Our Dreams Come True by Cindy Greco, that topped out at number 30 on the charts. So this show here, it was a pop culture phenomenon, and it all came to an end on May 10th, 1983, with the conclusion of the Happy Days spinoff, Laverne and Shirley, and Shamil Shamazel, Haas and Pepper Incorporated. You know what I'm saying? All right, Mike Ranger. What do you have for the television round? Well, on May 12, 1990, Andrew Dice Clay hosted Saturday Night Live, and cast member Nora Dunn and musical guest Sinead O'Connor decided to boycott the episode. The censors were so scared of Dice Man's misogynistic, raunchy act that Lorne Michaels was, was pressured to air the show with a delay in case Dice went too far. I found an article by David Hinckley in the Daily News. Hinckley wrote that he wondered how SNL had gone from the famous Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor sketch in the first season to censoring edgy comedy and asks if the Chase-Pryor sketch had been censored, would we have shows like In Living Color willing to do things they know people aren't comfortable with? So we've got Andrew Dice Clay hosting Saturday Night Live, a cast member boycotting the episode along with Sinead O'Connor. What did Sinead did something fucked up on that episode too, didn't she? Didn't she get kicked off? No, she well, she boycotted the episode, but then she did something else a couple years later, right? For a picture of the, the the Pope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She had ripped up that picture of the Pope, and oh man, Lauren Michaels lost his shit then. Yep. Yep. Never she to never be invited back. back. Yeah. Done. She was on the ban list, which we've talked about a few times on this show. Yep. The SNL ban list. It's quite a list. It is. All right, so for my television news story, we're going to go back to the newspapers here. In the Hattiesburg American from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, an article called WPG Without Parental Guidance. WPG Without Parental Guidance tracks what's hot and what's not for teens. MTV has lofty ideas for freeform TV. 
Now this is reality television. Put seven young adults in a Manhattan loft for 13 weeks, roll the cameras, and if it works, MTV will have the hippest show since Beverly Hills, 90210. MTV's Real World, which debuted Thursday night at 9 p.m., isn't quite a soap opera because none of the hand-picked quote-unquote characters, four men and three women aged 19 to 25, are actual actors, nor did they work from any scripts. The Real World producers rented a million-dollar Soho loft, dropped the gang in an army of cameramen and technicians, and filmed it in fishbowl style as they lived their lives. So here we have the debut of The Real World, which absolutely changed television. It introduced us to reality TV, or did it? Everyone always credits this as the godfather of reality TV, but it was actually inspired by a 1973 PBS documentary called An American Family. MTV took that concept, revolutionized it for the 1990s, and started something that we're still feeling today. Reality TV is still a staple on all of our tubes 24-7, and it was that real feel that was actually a last-minute decision. Originally, producers wanted the actors, quote-unquote actors, to work off a script. The last minute, they thought that the lines would sound too fake and too false or forced. They ditched that idea and then just said, no script, we're just going to improv, and uh, we'll film as it is. So that's what I got. On May 21st, 1992, the debut of MTV's The Real World. Oh, you guys are tearing me apart! (laughs) All right, Man Crush. You know, listen, I grew up on Happy Days. I mean, you know, before Pat Morita was Mr. Miyagi, he was Arnold. Yep. Right? Um, Little known fact, uh, there's an urban legend that Joni loves. I mean, I, I looked it up. I had to read it. Joni loves Chachi, a term, let's see, what is it? There was an urban legend that the word in Korean is very similar to penis, and that's why it was canceled in Korea. <laughs> or because it sucked. I mean, it just wasn't a good show. <laughs> These interesting um, brushes with Happy Days people in my career. I, I presented an award to Henry Winkler, which, like, that was my life. Um, I, I presented an award to uh, Mary Ross. Um, wow. Pat Morita, uh, Mr. Miyagi, uh, gave probably the worst audition I've ever given to Ron Howard. <laughs> uh, Mike, intermittently, I've been a huge SNL fan and other times been incredibly disappointed with them. This is an interesting story. I mean, you know, people got to remember how big and controversial Dice was. He was, I think he was banned for life from MTV. Um, I think, Mike, had you gone the extra mile and given us hickory dickory dock, you know. <laughs> Back to Joni Loves Chachi. <laughs> Joni Loves Chachi. <laughs> um, Mark, uh, let's see here. Uh, the real world. You know, I, right away I was thinking that this was absolutely the uh, the inception of reality TV. Uh, and as somebody that loves to point a finger, I think this, you know, ultimately tells us who we can blame for the blight that has been reality TV. And, and for that very reason that we now, now have a, uh, you know, a, a culpable and definitive group of people to blame for this, I'm gonna give it to you. Wow. <laughs> Let me yeah. ask you, Sean, you're obviously you're an accomplished actor. What is your feeling about reality TV? Well, you know, I, I've actually done, I think like three reality shows. I mean, you know, I, I was on Dancing uh, with the Stars in Italy. Right. Absolutely is a reality show. Uh, I, I've been on a couple others. Um, so I, I've certainly benefited from it. Um, but it really made it very difficult for scripted television for actors. Because, uh, you know, there, there became a time. I, it's, it's not like that anymore. But, you know, um, unscripted shows were doing better and pulling bigger ratings than scripted shows. They were much cheaper to produce. And consequently, um, it really contracted uh, the market for, for actors uh, for finding jobs. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, I got kind of uh, mixed feelings about it. I know that maybe didn't definitively answer your question, but. Yeah, we kind of get the vibe from it. Would you ever do a show like, cause I've seen it now in the States, like they did uh, celebrity big brother the last couple of years. Would you ever do a show like that? Yeah. You know, something I'm fortunate that I've got other options and things to do. Um, you know, here's the thing. 
reality shows thrive on conflict. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm married. My marriage is important to me. And, you know, I don't need to go insert myself into a situation where they're going to knowingly and actively insert conflict into my life. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah totally. And, um, you know, especially, you know, if you're a married guy or girl and you're on one of these shows, you know, it, it, yeah. So, um, no. It's, no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's why I keep turning them down all the well, time. Oh, well, maybe. You know, I actually um, at one point had lunch with uh, a producer from The Bachelor years and years and years ago when it first came out and they asked if I was interested in being the bachelor. And I, I said, no, and maybe in retrospect, I should have said yes, but I, <laughs> it just it didn't feel right. Uh, I was on general hospital at the time. Um, and, and so I was happy doing something that was a successful scripted show. Um, but, uh, you know, without a doubt, reality television has been uh, a, a very important part in the history of television. Right. Now, you brought this part up, too. You brought up that you had the worst reading, I guess, in front of Ron Howard. Please elaborate on this. Yeah, it's nothing really funny. I just, you know, I, I had really just started acting. I've done a couple things, and I, I got an audition for Ron Howard, and it just was one of those things where, you know, I was still... I was still too green as an actor to have maybe an audition that big. And uh, he's never had me back again. So, uh, you know, Ron, if you're listening to this. Uh, of course. He is. <laughs> Loyal listener to the it show. Was, you know, it, was for, it was for that movie uh, Backdraft. Oh, no and, shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, I man. Gedrick ultimately got the part and, and did a very good job. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that happens sometimes. You know, when you, when you start acting and. You know, I'd done Karate Kid 3, and then I did a series for uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, the Outsiders television series. And so I, I was humming, but, I, you know, I, I really, you know, still needed to spend some time in acting class and refining what I was doing. And I got some big auditions. And, and you know, sometimes you, uh, you know, you read for somebody big, and, and if, if you don't kill it right out of the box, you don't ever get another chance to do it. Listen, I've had... I've had lots of great breaks. I've had lots of times when I did bring my A game. Um, you know, an acting career is a, a marathon, not a 50 yard dash. All the stuff that I tell myself at night to get myself through. So, of, of course, <laughs> I, I think that's true for anything. And I, I heard you tell this story before, and we're getting into the movies round. So I think it's very relevant. And you're just talking about doing auditions and stuff. Talk about this because I think this is your first big role. And this is a role that a lot of our listeners know you from is doing, you know, the, the karate bad boy, Mike Barnes. And I think it's a really cool story. Like, how did you uh, get that role? I get it. Okay. So I, I had been out in uh, Hollywood. I had done a couple little jobs, uh, some guest star work on television. Uh, and I, I found out they were, they were casting the new heavy in Karate Kid 3. Um, and they were going to have an open call. So an open call, a cattle call basically means to anybody and everybody who wants to show up can show up. And I mean, these aren't, you know, actors with, you know, members of the Screen Actors Guild and all that stuff. They're just like anybody off the street. And so I was standing in line outside the studio with like 1,500 people and John Avelson, who had won the Academy Award for Rocky and he had uh, directed the first two Karate Kid films, was making his way up the line, intermittently stopping to, to talk to somebody. And I knew I had like literally a couple seconds to get this guy's attention. And he stopped in front of me and I got his attention and we did a quick improv. He asked me to intimidate him. And uh, I, I may have said something about his wife, him, a knife in the kitchen of his house. And he said, <laughs> I, I buy it. And he sent me into the studio. And uh, you know, once I got in, it was like a three-ring media circus. There was Entertainment Tonight and there was Access Hollywood and all of these media outlets. And then there was Ralph Macchio on a... Uh, a set that they created and they asked me to go do a, a scene with him. Uh, again, you know, it, it basically just entailed my intimidating him. And uh, they, they, they were, they were impressed, but they hired somebody else. And so they hired this other guy and I guess it didn't work out. And about five days later, they called me to come back to the studio and, you know, I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard and I'm, you know, I, just, I, I knew something good was going to happen. I figured, you know, maybe there's another buddy bad guy or something that they're going to bring me in for. And, and I'm looking up at the Hollywood sign there as the sun's going down. 
and everything's like hyper dramatic, you know. And you know, sometimes when you're looking at the Hollywood sign, it, it smirks at you, and other times it smiles at you. And I go into the studio and I go up to the producer's office, and there's Robert Mark Kamen, who's written the first two Karate Kid films, later went on to uh, write Taken, and so many big blockbusters. And uh, you know, they had me do a couple martial arts moves, they went and into a room and left the door open and I could see them talking and they're kind of huddled around and like minutes later they're sending me to wardrobe I mean you know normally you get a role like this and you know you start in a month or I mean it was like I that night I was going through the wow. and it was just surreal because I mean like I said I, I a year or so before I was a paying audience member watching Karate Kid 2 um, you know I used to run home from school to watch Happy Days watch Pat Morita as Arnold, and then later as Mr. Miyagi, and then days later, I'm I'm on the the back lot of the set, I mean of the of the studio, and I'm I'm you know, rehearsing a scene with Ralph Macchio, and it, you know it, it changed the trajectory of my career and uh, largely my life. For sure, were you completely starstruck at that point when you got on? You the know, lot? I was, I was, but very quickly I could see that because I was a new actor and they didn't really know if I was going to be able to do the job. I mean, they hoped I could. I mean, I had martial arts experience. I mean, I was a professional actor, very, very still green and new, um, but they were on me. Like they, they rode herd on me and, and they were right to do it because, you know, I was, I was a very kind of undisciplined wild kid in my early twenties. Um, you know, I came out to Hollywood by myself. I mean, you know, it was, it was the eighties. I mean, May have been some shit going on and uh, <laughs> quickly ascertained that, you know, I was going to have to go on lockdown and really work hard to learn the choreography, learn the dialogue, you know, work with these guys as equals, even though we weren't. And, and not only that, I had to be the intimidating, scary guys, this young kid doing scenes with stars, right? you know? And so um, the, the, the starstruckness, um, was there, but it it dissipated very quickly, or at least I I kept it in check. Well, that's good. Like there, there's a, a specific scene. All of us rewatched the movie the other night. We have all kinds of theories and shit about the movie. I won't even go into that right now. But there was a when you first come onto the scene where they're at the bonsai tree shop, and it's Daniel and uh, what's her name again? The Robin Lively. Robin Lively, and. It, you end up having to kick her in the stomach. Well, not have to, but you, have kick- to. <laughs> but you kick her in the stomach. And as like a new actor, what was going through your head at that? I mean, it was 1989, so it's a little bit different. In 2020, you probably never would have been able to do that. <laughs> but like, what was going through your head? The, the big thing right there was that I, I really was conscientious of not hurting her right. because I really needed to throw a good, clean, kick but make sure that it looked real but there was no chance of her getting hurt and fortunately you know that that worked out but you know i, I watch it now and just laugh i mean it's like it's horrible i mean what a what a thoroughly reprehensible guy you know <laughs> poor girl and then daniel takes it in the crotch with the macaroni and cheese or does he hit somebody with the macaroni and cheese oh he hits, he hits macaroni and cheese or she you guys know the movie better than i do I mean. <laughs> well i mean the thing is we watched it like i used to watch it all the time as a kid i think out of all of them i think three was always on hbo the most for whatever reason and they probably and got it cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it was always on hbo so i watched it all the time and then watching it as an adult this will be quick and we'll we'll get into this last round but we were talking about it and we're like you know if they had just taken the whole bonsai tree shop out of the story they could have like condensed everything and had a much cooler tournament where you could have beat the shit out of like all these guys instead of just like one dude. Was there any reason behind that? Why it was so short? I, I don't know about that. I, I actually, I actually like the stuff in the, you know, I, I like the stuff in the bonsai, uh, in the bonsai store. Well, Cause you like, got to steal all this shit. That's why you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably film was that there were a lot of problems with the film but i think one of the things was you know ralph's relationship with robin or their characters you know you you would think it would be a romantic relationship and it just got so truncated that i I think that was a little bit of an issue 
Uh, it would have worked better if he was really fighting for, you know, a, a love interest like he had Ali in the first one. And right. Uh, what was the character's name in the second one? I think a real name's Kamiko. Kamiko. Yeah. Yeah. I've rewatched that too. You guys should have been two. Karate Kid three should have been Karate Kid two, and Karate Kid three should have been or two should have been three. Right. He just that. finished fighting for his life. And he had to go back and fight in a tournament and then didn't use any of the stuff that he learned in Okinawa, which right. I was just like, dude, what are you doing? Right. If you go one, three, two, it's a more natural progression for the character. With that, that's a, that's a very good observation, guys. <laughs> he's in the back of his head. He's like, fuck you guys. No, I gonna... <laughs> Fucking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to round five. And I actually, before we get there, uh, a fan of ours sent a message earlier on and wanted to ask you, was Daniel's karate really shit? <laughs> he worked very hard. He worked very hard. To, uh, he, did, he did fine. It was, I told him, it's like he had, they forced him to wear dad jeans the whole time. So it's harder oh. to do kicks. So I, it's not so much his karate. I, I had like these these goofy Union Bay gray jeans on with some weird tie-dye black and red thing. And like, I thought it was a really good idea to cut my hair like that because I thought it looked like Dolph Lundgren and Karate Kid 4. <laughs> I, I just looked like a tool. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody was winning an Oscar for wardrobe on that film. Let's put it that way. Oh, man. <laughs> so awesome. All right, let's move on to round five. Who won, who won TV round? Uh, I did. did. Okay, all right. So we got movies. All right, so to recap, we're at 3-2. to two. I'm in the lead uh, against Nick. Mike's is still yet to pick up a point, and we're at the movies round, the final two-point round. So for my movies entry, we're going to go to the Lansing State Journal. In Lansing, Michigan, I found just a gem of a review from this movie. On a scale of 0 to 10, this, this movie was rated a 0. Nice. Yeah. The headline reads, Totally Barfo Flick Needs a Major Overhaul, Dude. That's the headline, written by Marshall Fine. And the article reads, Wayne's World was stupid, but it was also extremely funny. Encino Man is stupid. Period. Aimed at the same audience, Encino Man tries to encapsulate the very meager talents of MTV personality Pauly Shore. And I use the word personality advisedly less funny than even bill and ted who weren't a load of laughs either sure is the faux valley guy to the hilt his efforts are effortless and strenuously unfunny this dismal little film starts the next paragraph so you know it's never a good review when they call it a dismal film in the second paragraph so yeah that is my movie pick for this round it is 1992's encino man released may 22nd this is just a special movie, I'm sure, to all of us. Shush. Despite getting the horrid reviews in a meager 5.8 on IMDb, this movie holds a very special place in all of our hearts. Matter of fact, I went on our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, and I asked a lot of our listeners to review this film in only three words. We got hundreds of reviews for this film. Levi Fulmer said, have one rolled, and I couldn't agree with him more. <laughs> Farrell Riggs and Jeremy Bernard both gave me the great review. Ow, my pancreas. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a lot of people just come on and said, wheezing the juice. Uh, but I think my favorite was uh, Christopher Michael, who gave me the review of Nugs, Chillin', and Grindage, which I think perfectly sums up this movie in a great way to spend a Saturday evening, a Monday evening, hell, a Tuesday afternoon. Sit down, watch yourself some Encino Man. So that's my movie pick. Let's throw it over to Mike Ranger. All right, well, uh, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about this. This is a well-known movie and a well-known franchise, but on May 25th, 1990, Back to the Future Part 3 premiered and went on to gross over $246 million at the box office, released six months after the second installment, which was great for me because I was in the theater with my father during the second one, and when he found out that the third movie was already made and we had to wait six months for it, he flipped the fuck out. <laughs> 
we ended up seeing part three at the Warwick Drive-In, which is actually pretty awesome. And yeah, that's the future part three. Wow. Very nice. All right. So here's mine. I'm going to truncate this one. Uh, March 25th, 1983. Uh, last episode, I missed out by fucking two weeks to get the release of Star Wars. And I had to end up going with the car from 1977. This time I lucked out. Uh, they uh, they match this one up with Star Wars. They put it out on the same date. This is for Return of the Jedi. Here's a movie. It brought in $475 million at the box office. That's $1.3 billion in 2020. Uh, obviously, it's the highest grossing movie in 1983. It was number one, I'm going to say, for seven consecutive weeks. Because in week four, it was actually, everyone was duped because Superman 3 came out. And it beat out Return of the Jedi for one week. And then everyone was like, no, it sucks. And Return of the Jedi went right back to number one. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of little things with this movie. Like on the set of uh, Return of the Jedi, they they changed the name to Blue Harvest Horror Beyond Imagination. So nobody knew that they were filming it. There's like a lot of different things. It should have been Revenge of the Jedi. Then they changed the name to Return. But yeah, I mean, what else is there to say? Return of the Jedi, Star Wars, gigantic franchise, huge money, merchandise out the ass. That's what I got for movies. Wow. That's a huge pick. And that makes this an absolutely huge round with Encino Man and <laughs> Return of the Jedi and Back to the Future 3. But let's see what our judge, Sean Kanan, has to say for the final judgment for the movies round. This is kind of a tough, tough one. Uh, I'm going to start with Mike Ranger. Uh, Mike, as a... Uh, as a veteran of a part three film, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pulled to kind of, you know, support the fraternity. Oh, as you should, because oh, as always, the third installment of any franchise is always the finest example of quality filmmaking. Oh, right, like the Godfather 3, for example. Exactly. <laughs> House Party 3. Uh, That's right. Dino <laughs> Man, hating Dino Man. I mean, you know... I. I in really, really small doses, I found Polly initially kind of entertaining. The crazy thing about that movie, he actually auditioned for the role of Link. And then they saw Brendan Fraser, and they're like, oh, well, we got to give the role to Brendan Fraser. So they created the role of Stoney just for Polly Shore. There was actually, it wow. was never supposed to be a buddy movie. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, you know, Brendan Fraser was very, very hot during that time. Did a bunch of films. Um, you know, I just think it's, I think it's just hard to compete against the Star Wars franchise in its early man crush. I, I got to give it to you. Return of the Jedi, a great film. Um, I'm not even like a huge maniac Star Wars guy. I'm like, you know, they say there's two types of people. There's Star Trek and Star Wars. And I'm like all about Star Trek, the original series. That's that's kind of my steez. It's a good one. But yep. Totally respect uh, Star Wars, and so I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to give it to you, Man Crush, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I think that's it. Like, what is that? What do I end up with? Uh, four points to three there. Four to three. Man Crush takes this one, and unfortunately, Mike Ranger gets shut out. <laughs> he looks sad. He does. I think he's gonna cry. You okay, Mike? Yeah, I'm doing good. <laughs> We're worried about you, man. <laughs> but hey, we want to thank our great judge for this episode, Sean Kanan. Sean, tell everybody what you got in the works, what your current projects are, and where people can follow you. Uh, the big thing that I have going on right now is um, staying in my living room. Uh, <laughs> usually I usually about nine hours of television and intermittently go to my refrigerator. Um, nah, uh, I've got a show on time. Uh, it's called Studio City. It's a show I created. I star in it. Um, it's a short-form digital show been nominated for almost 20 awards please check it out uh it's funny it's it's serious it'll make you laugh and cry and we deal with a bunch of really cool interesting social issues while being very entertaining so studio city on amazon prime uh also uh, my second book is out it's called success factor x um it's a it was just rated one of the 20 best inspirational books of the last two decades by book authority you can get it on amazon um, went out to 50 amazing individuals and said, what's your best advice about success? Got everybody from Mark Cuban and Anthony Robbins to uh, Daryl McDaniels, founding member of Run DMC. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I think, you know, now with everything everyone's going through, if you need some inspiration, good book. You can uh, follow me on Twitter or uh, Instagram at Sean Kanan. 
Awesome. I want to pick up the book. Is it on Audible though? Because I can't. I don't. I never have time to read. You know, all of all of the people. It's like a coffee table book. All the people gave an organic um, contribution to what success means to them. And so, because we didn't get everybody reading their own thing, uh, we decided not to do uh, an audio book. But you know, what? It, it really is. Uh, it's a terrific book. Yeah, dude. I want to pick that up. I love Please those. Do. And I got nothing else to do. I'm on the nine hour plan myself. <laughs> <laughs> so much this was a lot of fun let's do this again sometime all right yeah for sure and thanks again for coming back on man i really appreciate it all right take care man all right duelers well i guess we'll end this episode right here once again i want to thank our judge sean canaan for coming in and judging this tight battle if you've missed an episode though don't worry you can always go back to duelingdecades.com where you can subscribe to all of our episodes right there on apple podcasts on spotify wherever podcasts are available. And then while you're on the interwebs, head over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, where you can join all the other duelers and share some of your own great retro memories. I want to thank Mike Ranger for coming on the show this week. Mike, why don't you tell everybody what's going on on the video Rangers podcast? Whole lot of nothing, Mark. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys recorded last night that I saw <laughs> You you got Chris Ranger on Skype like how? Uh, I don't know. He was a good fifteen beers in, so that might never ever get released. So yeah, <laughs> nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> He's on the nine hour plan as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Duelers, we're gonna bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.